With the Lady Jessica and Arrakis, the Bene Gesserit system of sewing implant legends through the Missionaria Protectiva came to its full fruition. The wisdom of seeding the known universe with a prophecy pattern for the protection of BG personnel has long been appreciated, but never have we seen a conditionate extremist with more ideal mating of person and preparation. The prophetic legends have taken on Arrakis even to the extent of adopted labels, including Reverend Mother, Canto, and Respondu, and most of the Shari Panoplia propheticus. And it is generally accepted now that the Lady Jessica's latent abilities were grossly underestimated. Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is Season 7, Episode 2, Desert Power, covering Book 1, Dune, Chapter 7 to 14. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book and this series. My name is Dan, and I have only read up to this part of the book. My name is Talia, and I've read uh, all of the Dune series, and I'm rereading the first book along with the podcast. My name is Priya, and I have only read up to this part of the book, and I have watched the movie. This is Amin, and I have read up to the current chapters, and I have also seen both the most recent movie and also the David Lynch movie many, many years ago. Uh, just a quick follow-up section. Um, so I know for me personally, like I know last time I had a really hard time <laughs> and complained about it a lot with the last section. So I did go back and reread it. And I, I, I actually found like to be a lot easier. And I don't know if it's because of my reading device. You know, I originally read it on my phone, which I thought was okay. But I think I just wasn't absorbing it. Maybe it was my environment or the actual device. But I actually went back and reread it on my Kindle. And it was like, it made a lot more sense to me. Maybe it's the fact that I did it after this podcast, but I also read the the current chapter in that way. I just I felt like I digested it a lot better. Like this this chapter in general to me was just easier to just understand on on first reading. I wasn't like totally lost like I was in the last one. Um, I also I I know we talked about uh, spoiling ourselves for the movie, and I I watched like the first like two minutes of the movie just to kind of get a sense of what it looks like, but then it stopped. <laughs> I almost didn't want to get spoiled on it, but at least I have like a sense of like the the new movie's vision for what this world looks like or what, what this cow looks like i didn't get to a to the point where they get to a rackets anyway so i think let's just jump right into the summary we have a lot of events that happen and tali is going to take us through the summary for this this part of the book thank you dan so here we are in the second section so the importance of genealogy breeding and ancestry is brought to the forefront again when leto and jessica admire each other upon their arrival to arrakis it's revealed that Jessica's ancestry is unknown to the Duke and to Jessica herself. As they set up their, fam their new family home, Jessica retains the housekeeper, a Fremen woman named the Shadow Mates, who's eager to serve a Bene Gesserit woman, doubtless due to the consequences of the Missionaria Protectiva. Their encounter covers water as wealth and Jessica's comments that she understands the semantic meaning of Mates' title, as well as ancient tongues, which fulfills her housekeeper's expectation of a legend. Through observing minutia, Jessica lays bare her housekeeper's inner life, using a cold read to correctly guess her history and revealing that she knows there is a concealed weapon in her bodice. Slowly, Mapes re reaches into the neck of her dress to withdraw a milk-white blade. Mapes presses Jessica to ask if she knows the significance of this weapon. It could only be one thing Jessica knew, the fabled Chris knife of Arrakis, the blade that had never been taken off planet and was known only by rumor and wild gossip. So with a distinct sense that she is still being tested, Jessica stumbles into the answer that its meaning is a maker. 
She keeps her own counsel, but internalizes that the key word is uppercase maker, so uh, capital M, maker. So true to her word that the weapon was a gift, Maeve's hands over the blade to Jessica, a tooth of shy halud, a sandworm. Yui, straining under the pressure of keeping secrets from Jessica, has a short conversation with her that touches on the kidnapping and the potential death of his wife at the hands of the Harkonnens, as well as the life-prolonging drug, the spice melange. Jessica senses that he is hiding something, but hesitates just short of pulling it out of him and departs to explore the rest of their new quarters. Deep into her explorations of the house, Jessica finds a door hidden behind a palm lock, supposed to verify the identity of the person seeking entry. Using her training, Jessica is able to distort the lines in her palm to unlock the door. She catches her housekeeper looking with resentment into the room beyond and pushes the door open to find it conceals a water-laden greenhouse housing non-native plants. Quote, Every available space in the room was crowded with exotic wet climate plants. End quote. Not only is the room not sealed to reclaim moisture, the place is sustained by a constant spray of irrigation, and the glass that forms the walls is filtered to transform the appearance of the Arakeen sun into a softer, yellower star. Jessica estimates that this pleasure room used water enough to support a thousand persons on Arrakis, possibly more. On a leaf, she makes a discovery a note beyond the Harkonnen sphere of influence from the Emperor's former proxy, which contains a hidden message. Using a second coded system that evaded even Hawat, the trained mentat, Jessica finds this message. Your son and the Duke are in immediate danger. A bedroom has been designed to attract your son. The H loaded it with death traps to be discovered, leaving one that may escape detection. The threat to your Duke involves defection of a trusted companion or lieutenant. The H planned to give you as gift to a minion. To the best of my knowledge, this conservatory is safe. Forgive me, but I cannot tell more. Paul, having palmed Yui's sleeping tablet, retires to his room, which is fitted out with all the smart automations allowed within the confines of this technology-free environment. With a desire to explore, Paul slips out of bed and is almost immediately confronted with a hunter-seeker, a common assassination weapon. It is controlled remotely from a close distance, and relies on motion to target its prey. Paul's trained immobility saves him, and he is able to seize the thing out of the air and crush it as the door opens to reveal the shutout mapes. She interprets his actions as saving her life. Thus, she tells him that she contractually now owes him a water burden. To pay off her debt, she tells Paul that the Fremen know there's a traitor in their midst. The Duke, meanwhile, is shoring up the operations of the Spice Collection on planet, Though knowing that Caladan is his ancestral home, he devotes himself to the task of governance of Arrakis. He instructs Gurney to retain the spice drivers, weather scanners, dune men, any with open sand experience, with a 20% wage increase. Like the Lady Jessica, the Duke is able to convey with his members and subordinates non-verbally. A slap of the arm here, a signal there, which duties to prioritize and sanction. This position he holds requires levers of propaganda, performance, and politics. While acting, he's aware the whole time the Harkonnens have made an assassination attempt on Paul. Finally, in the meeting room, the aroma of Rakag stimulant fills the air as Duke Leto invites Paul to his first full staff chamber meeting. He and Paul consider the matter of Howat's failure to catch the hunter-seeker, but ultimately both agree that Howat's training saved Paul, and the Duke refuses his resignation, graciously telling him that his only failure was overestimating the Harkonnens, as the device was so simple. Whether he is feigning or has actually relaxed, 
He does not let any of his anxiety at the attempt bleed into the meeting. His men report the population of Arrakis and shrewdly plan whether the Atreides and the Fremen can establish a relationship of trust. It is revealed that the Fremen conduct widespread smuggling operations. Duke chooses not to fight this, but grants amnesty as long as he receives a tithe. This maneuver is not unexpected, but when Halleck points out that the Emperor is jealous of all spice prophets, the Duke reveals the rest of his plan. He will openly declare the tithe as part of business operations and deduct from the support costs, defying the Harkonnens to object to this legal business and cutting out the officials who concealed Harkonnens' secret profit skimming. We also were introduced to a couple of new characters this time. Um, you know, we had a lot more in the first episode, but we did have some new ones here. Shadow Mapes, the head servant of the household inheriting from the Harkonnens, whose name signifies Well Dipper. Lady Fenring, a Bene Gesserit lady who was married to the former proxy to the Emperor before the Atreides. Count Fenring, a friend and advisor to the Emperor who served on Arrakis before Atreides. Duncan Idaho, companion to Paul and who works for Leto. And Stilgar, a Fremen chief. I don't really know much more about him than that. A lot happened in this section, uh, but I think it was Priya yeah. who mentioned a lot of it happens around like one person, that person being Jessica, of course. Yeah, I thought it was like pretty interesting. Um, like, you know, the chapter kind of the this part of the and I don't say chapter, this part of the book kind of starts with um, yeah, talking a lot about Jessica and like I don't I, I couldn't quite tell if she was like resentful about her not being married. I guess I didn't catch that in the first part that she wasn't married, but like she kind of talks about it a lot. Um and even like when she finds out like the the lady Fenring had been married, she's like, Oh, she's married, huh? Uh, I don't know. It seemed to be like a, a pretty big deal to her. Yeah, I, I missed that completely in the first in the first episode or whatever that we read. And yeah, yeah. It, it seemed to come up a lot more this time. Like it was setting something up. Like I don't know. This whole book feels like set up to me. So I think mm. there probably just wasn't time to set up the implications of being a consort and not a wife. I guess. But yeah, I had the same. I had the same response to that. I think it's very uh, interesting and also a little bit confusing. And I wonder if it's meant to have us asking these questions of what is the status of a concubine, as she calls herself, in this society? Because there is something we find out, which is that she was bought by the Duke and um, mm -hmm. she describes herself as the concubine, which is kind of it, it matches what our perception in our world would be of um, what a concubine might have been in olden times. But at the same time, you see how she has all the respect from the people around her as if she were the Duke's wife just without being his wife. And the fact that she isn't his wife so far, as far as we have seen, seems to affect her more than it affects the perception of the people who treat her a certain way. So that makes me wonder, does someone who is a concubine have a higher status in this society than someone who would, ha who would have been in her position in, in like olden times? Well, there's there's significant evidence for what matters in this society. You know, we see it in the very beginning as Leto and Jessica are looking at each other. You see it in the opening quote from Frank Herbert about people's abilities. And we saw it in last episode where we saw what the Bene Gesserit do, like they sift through people. So I guess I would ask, is it important to them who is 
you know, holding a title, maybe, but it seems a lot more important to them who is breeding and who's in control of that breeding. And Jessica has a strike against her because she was supposed to have only daughters and she had Paul. But the fact that she is still starting a family and making children with the Duke means that she's still basically following uh, what this society is, you know, obviously working within within those rules. She also seemed like particularly proud of like, like when um, the the shadow mapes like asked her like, you know, so, so does she do they have a wife? And she and he's like, she was like, no. And in fact, I'm the only person that she's with, right? You'd think like a con- like person as a concubine would have like a lot of concubines, right? Like I think you're thinking of a harem, Dan. Maybe. I don't know. But like I think of a concubine no. as like, a, you know, someone on the side. Let's let's talk about that interaction with her and the Shadow Mapes. Like, yeah, that was gangster. I mean, she does so many cold reads. She's in the middle of an yeah. interview for a household servant. And suddenly she's busting out like all these hunting languages and telling the yeah. future. Yeah, she she also comes off as having a lot more powers, like superpowers in this in this uh, section. You know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of got the sense from the last one. They're like, oh, they, they can do you know some crazy stuff. Um, but this one is like, yeah, she can like, she busted it out and like was able to like read her mind and like, and like see that, I don't know, read her mind or I don't know, whatever it was like to the yeah, clock that she had a knife in her, uh, in her bodice there. And then, yeah, she also knew all those like extra, all those like ancient languages or I mean, not ancient, but all those languages that they knew. And then she knew about the, some kind of prophecy, I guess, the, around the knife and she knew about the knife. Yeah. Not to mention like biological powers too like she could get into your touchscreen ipad she can change yeah. <laughs> yeah. her palm print to get into a door like she's right. definitely pretty powerful wife or not yeah i mean it's, i don't know if that's the case for like all benny gender or just her um mm. but yeah well it yeah. is implied it is implied that other benny cheshire seem to maybe even have more powers than her because um later on uh yue says that uh, he recognized that she didn't have the ability oh, yeah. to discern the truth. truth. Yeah, the truth sense. So his wife apparently has that ability. So he knows that it exists and mm-hmm. he recognizes that Jessica doesn't have it, but still he thinks it's best to be careful around her with matters concerning the truth because she still seems to have the ability to sense when something is off. Yeah, it's interesting. He can't like see through him, right? <laughs> like, like maybe it's just because we know he's, I mean, I, from the the introduction uh, quotes, like that that Yue is a traitor, right? Um, so and, and he also you know says it in his head all the time, like uh, and you know so we know like we know what his motivations are, but it's interesting that he, that you now he could see right through the the fremen, but he can't see through or she couldn't see through uh, through Yue here. Yeah, I guess like going back a little bit to the, the actual like uh, single single concubine, like there's also another mention, um, you know why. She never got married. I think there's like two two different reasons, right? That one that she says is for like political reasons. Uh, so the the duke can like leave himself open for politi- marriage, uh, you know, political alliance via marriage at some point. Like mm-hmm. he might never do it, but like that that option is open to people to like be more inclined exactly. to negotiate with him. And then uh, also like the the duke also says to to Jessica like, well, if we got if we actually got married, you had to do all these like formal things that you'd probably hate. Right now you had to like sometimes be around me, but like if we were married, like we would have you'd have to. Oh, you become me. Princess Diana. That's yeah. the problem. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Although it seems like that's just the thing that he like tells her and himself as like an excuse for like many larger reasons for why he hasn't married her. 
But yeah. um, I also find it very interesting, um, her quote to Yue, when he kind of weirdly openly asks her why um, she didn't just like compel the Duke to marry her with with powers that she has. And she says that motivating people, forcing them to your will, gives you a cynical attitude towards humanity. It degrades everything it touches. If I made him do this, then it would not be his doing. So I, I found that really fascinating because it, she seems to have a very keen awareness of, of the, where she should draw a line or place limits upon herself for her abilities. Um that she has a very strong sense of morality that surrounds her abilities, that she doesn't want to just force people to her will, even if she has the ability to do so. And I mean, it speaks to the fact that there has to be a, a degree of love and respect between her and the Duke, or at least from her side, that just prevents her from doing that. So that that was a very interesting way of you know just hearing her say this out loud to Yue, who's just asking this question where it might not be his place to ask such a question it was also kind of surprising like how the um relationship between the duke and jessica is pretty cold like i know like she didn't give him the the the, the right sex of of kid other way around dan she disobeyed the Bene Gesserits and did give the duke what he wanted oh was that what it is Oh, I misunderstood. <laughs> yeah, he wanted a boy. And um, she said, oh, he wanted he wanted a boy so badly when questioned why she didn't have a girl. So, yeah. Yeah. So it makes even less sense then. Why? Why this? Why is he uh, so cold to her? Maybe it's just like his position, right? And he thinks he has to be. It's just royalty, I guess. Uh, what do you think of the way that the Duke does his actual job, takes meetings and tries to keep spice flowing and works with the Fremen. Do you think he's successful? Do you think he's just being set up as the foil, like Harkonnen bad, Atreides good? Or do you think there's some actual insight? I'm curious how, you know, that we, I think we only had one scene that was really focused on him. So I'm curious how, how it landed. I don't know. I've, so I've, I've seen, I've seen the movie. So I'm going back to that. And, and Oscar Isaac seemed like a very competent Duke in the movie. So I'm giving him a lot of benefit of the doubt. I know the book is setting it up as as though he's, well, what I read it as was that he is getting set up for something and he and he's not taking actions to to counteract that. Like he's just preparing for for whatever is going to happen to happen and I guess I don't have a strong opinion about it again cuz cuz I'm I'm probably biased by by the movie more than anything else maybe i'll ask uh dan since his mind is more pure hasn't seen the movie but like you know just because we were spending some time talking about jessica talking about the duke and people speculating about the duke and paul thinking about his father and we only really get this one scene this like all staff meeting to actually see the duke taking actions in his own life so because it's much smaller than the time we spend with Jessica or Paul. Uh, how do you think he's doing in his job? Do you think he's being set up as effective? Do you think that these uh, policies he's trying to enact will work? How do you think it's How do you think it's going? Yeah, I think he's. I mean, to me, like it seems like he's doing a pretty effective job. Like you know, he hasn't in his head the whole time. That like you know, he's really mad about the attempt of uh, the attempted uh, assassination of Paul, uh, and he keeps repeating in his head over and over again that they tried to you know take his son's life. Um, but, you know, it seems to make 
a lot of moves. He seems to know that like there's a plot against him. And then he's just kind of, he's like, he's kind of lulling uh, them into a false sense of security. And like, he knows that, that he's, he's being set up for a trap and he's going to like, he's going to act him, you know, on, uh, he's going to like counteract himself. Like he has a plan that maybe he hasn't, um, he hasn't talked about. That's my sense anyway. Um, but yeah, he made like, uh, he got like the, the, the guys to get hired back for like higher wages uh, because he knows like the plan. He, he, um, he has a plan to, to kind of skim off the top of the, the smugglers. When he found out about the attempt on Paul's life, he, you know, kind of shifted troops from here to there. He seems to have a pretty good rapport with his, with his troops uh, overall as well. Mm-hmm. Like um, you know, he, he talks about being confident with them and he talks to his minister of what propaganda, you know, and like apparently like he has minister of propaganda, to let him know everything's good as a leader. He seems pretty effective. And he's like, also like communicating to Paul, you know, about the, what, what leadership mm-hmm. means. Um, so, I mean, to me, it seems like he's being at least portrayed in this section as like a pretty good leader. And like, there's nothing for me to doubt that he is not a good leader. And, for you know, sure. he, he was also, you know, kind of promoted to this position. Maybe that was for, he's being set up for it, but like he was promoted from, right. Um, right. <laughs> from position on, on Caledon to, to Arrakis to potentially make a lot of money on this spice stuff um, for, you know, cleaning up a situation for wherever the, the, the Harkonnen were kicked up, maybe because they're mean to the Fremen or I'm sure there's a lot more to it. I, mean, but, yeah. <laughs> I just found it very relatable, I guess, on this reread, because I think all of us have been, whether it's promoted or just assigned to a new project, and someone has come before and you just inherit, you like take a look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, it's a mess. I'm going to need to dig myself out just to get back to zero. <laughs> yeah. Even all like the the ships and uh, not ships, but like the car, like all the stuff they did, the heroic. And the, yeah. The, like you inherit a project and right. everything is, you know, unsafe or broken or about to run out or full of expired licenses or whatever it is that plagues you. And right. Or trying to That's kill your just, son. That happens in <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bummers <laughs> like that. And like all of his spice carriers are broken. There's this huge smuggling. I think there's like a collective gasp around the room when they reveal like just how much um, profit skimming the Harkonnens have been doing. I think it's like in the billions. And I do think there's a certain wry defiance in saying like, well, here's the amount that we're going to skim off the top. It's not going to change opportunistically. We're just going to like say this much and we're going to legally declare it and we're just going to write it into our taxes yeah and they even talk about like depreciation right like they say like if we're gonna only yeah. make like a couple you know like a very small percentage like it was like six to eight percent or something in the, exactly. in the first couple of years we're gonna make and single then, digit percentages right and then after it'll be 30 but it's, it's, it's gonna take a while like we need to like, rebuild this stuff like this is not a good situation so yeah they just inherited a mess it's it seems like he's i mean to me like i think he's doing he seems like he's doing a good job as a dude to me the only thing I don't understand and haven't throughout this, having read the book and having reread this section, is what we're supposed to take away from that greenhouse. What was the, I mean, it's like a grotesque overuse of water, right? So at first I thought this is like leftover from the Harkonnens and this is showing how much they don't care about the population. And we find out it's like a secret note from the Bene Gesserits and it's the only place that's safe. I'm wondering if they're saying that that means it's worth it. It's worth it to let like hunt thousands of people go without water. So you can have like this chill garden. I, I was really confused by that. I, I was, I was too. At first I thought it was going to, and, and I don't remember this from the movie. So I'm going off of only what's in the book here. But at first I thought it was setting up 
you know, the Duke is going to be a benevolent leader and he's going to shut all of this down. Right, but, exactly. But clearly, that's, what I was that's not where they're, where they're headed. So just like you, I'm kind of, I'm curious where, where that's going to end up and what the strategic role of that, of that room ends up being. And same with the palm trees that, what did they say? It's like enough water for four people or five people or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same with that. It, I thought it was an opportunity to, to show the Duke as a leader, but then he didn't do anything yet. Yeah, maybe it's a long game that we haven't caught up on, but didn't catch that yet. I thought that it was in addition to kind of highlighting this, um, this perhaps this uh, disconnect between those who are wealthy and those who actually are the um, natives of the land who have to survive off of like the bare minimum water and so much so that water is sacred to them it's embedded in their language as like something that is uh almost like uh akin to religion mm-hmm. I, I i think this 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 dichotomy just like this or this juxtaposition between how water is used and for by the wealthy versus how it's seen and used by the natives of the land who are not uh is shown by this this opulent room of course but at the same time, I thought that I was getting the sense that they have this very, what to me seems like naive idea that they're going to transform Arrakis into a a planet or a land that can support this type of forestry almost like to... Like terraforming, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Terraforming is the word. That's the word I was looking for. So to me, that garden almost seemed like it was experimental to see how they can manufacture conditions that can support these water-loving plants and to see if they can create this, like, I guess, on a macro scale on the planet. Although it seems kind of like this room is just relegated to the space of a pleasure room versus actually serving a purpose or mm-hmm. or like it doesn't seem like anybody is really attending to this space and trying to see like, oh, hey, can we do this in, in, in the world at large? But I hadn't thought of it that way. That's, that's a good way. Yeah. The experimental nature of it struck struck out to me. <laughs> Yeah, that also reminds me, you know, the one quote that stuck out to me um, when, I, when I was reading it was when um, Jessica and, and UA are talking, they talk about like when they drill the, the holes for water, like the water starts to come out of like a little bit and then stops. And the quote says like, uh, but Wellington, that's the mystery. The water was there. It dries up and it never again is there water. Yet another hole nearby produces the same result, a trickle that stops. Has no one ever been curious about this? So I was curious about that. Like that seems, you know, kind of uh, artificial, and you know, like something is is maybe stopping the water. So maybe yeah, there's definitely something up with this planet for sure. Yeah, especially with water. Right? It's like like you know, like they're kind of manipulating the the people on the world by withholding the water because uh, they even talk about like there's there's water in the in the atmosphere, and like that's how they mostly get their water. Like it collects on how you know however they collect water from. However, they do it. They collect water from, from you know, the rain or or moisture. But it or seems like some people are in the know. Like, yeah, there's these weird things that do happen on planet. And if you remember, this is a really small punctilio. I only caught it in my reread. That Hawat, I think, was it was during the staff meeting, and he was advising the Duke when he brought up the idea of like satellite for weather control. And Hawat said, like, you know, I got this news. 
And he was telling me one mentat to another that the price was out of reach, no matter how far we extend our reach. So there's something about like monitoring this planet that people who are in the know are saying like, no, it's just not going to happen, even though you don't understand it. So that stood out to me as well. And I think it helps build like intrigue and suspense. It also makes me wonder, what is the relationship between spice and water? Is it that, and this is just me completely speculating, having no knowledge. Is there a situation that the spice can only exist in a very, very dry climate or is a very dry climate required for the extraction of the spice and that introducing water or allowing for water to be freely available and permeating the space, would that interfere with the ability to extract spice? Because clearly spice is the most valuable substance on Arrakis and the reason why Arrakis is a strategic planet to begin with. And I wonder if water or the availability of water somehow interferes with with spice extraction someone pulled a really wonderful quote on spice can i can i read it now yes i think i might have added that yeah so you're saying it's so profitable and that we have perfect evidence for that in the text because when i'm talking about spice jessica says it tasted like cinnamon ua replies but never twice the same it's like life it presents a different face every time you take it some hold that the spice produces a learned flavor reaction the body Learning a thing is good for it interprets the flavor as pleasurable, slightly euphoric, and like life, never to be truly synthesized. So it tastes good, it's euphoric, and it makes you live longer. Like, of course, it's profitable. <laughs> Who wouldn't want this? Yeah, I mean, it seems like a select few also control it. So it's like maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe the water is like producing that spice somehow, or like they're using it, you know, to produce that spice so they can make more money and they're withholding that the 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 water from the people to in order to make more money like maybe that's the secret they're going to uncover the only objection i had to what priya said is when she said that water was like akin to religion i feel like water is deeply woven into how everyone on planet considers religion and spirituality and fate i think it's like inseparable yeah yeah like when she when uh, jessica cuts the the shadow with the and it's called it like the water of life or something right like for blood and then when they also um meet meet the guy in the in the boardroom and they spit on the table <laughs> sort of like that's like a sign of respect like oh you're giving up water like yeah yeah and like <laughs> when um like it's not just life and death it's like honor and money like she owes someone a water burden it's how you talk about what you owe to someone else oh, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's everywhere not to mention that the people have actually Um, it seems like evolved a certain way that their blood coagulates faster so that they Mm -hmm. don't lose as much water because of how precious water is. So that's also very fascinating. And I, this, this quote that um, you just read, uh, Talia reminded me actually of um, the earlier section where uh, the Reverend mother has a conversation with Paul about how one must not make a machine to counterfeit a human mind. Um, I think that there is this running theme, uh, which seems to be evoked even in this talk of the spice as being life itself. Um, Mm -hmm. around the inability to reproduce or recreate a thing that is sacred, like the human mind, like life itself, or the spice, which seems to be a symbol of these things that are all sacred and and 
non-recreatable so much so that the 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 taste itself of spice cannot be recreated mm-hmm. and it's different every time yeah i actually want to talk about the to kind of go back also to uh priya your earlier point about how they kind of evolved into uh, coagulating faster like that takes a long time um so and has this been happening that long where the people on the planet actually changed or were they kind of genetically manipulated because we've seen like some weird genetic manipulation of people so like maybe they were manipulated into being able to survive in this because they're kind of using that that population i don't know it just seems kind of weird to me that that line there that they they evolved already that's true and we also know that their eyes are different from like normal people's eyes what i what i did gather from all these descriptions of the spice and um this emphasis in the section on its value is that definitely seems like the substance that you would totally go in and exploit the native or indigenous people of a land to be able to get from them. So that yeah. that sense is very much there. It definitely seems like, yeah, like an analogy to like oil or or diamonds or, you know, something something valuable that like is on land that that rich people want to get to exploit that poor people on the land. Yeah, I, I thought of the of the blood diamonds in Africa when I when I read that part of it where you can exploit the local labor force to do those things for you. Or I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of other examples in Africa because Africa's been exploited for a long time. Yeah, and I think it's no coincidence that it's a a, a dune, a sand like planet that is pretty hostile environment to people who are not accustomed to living in anything but the most comfortable conditions. So I think that that comparison to places in our real world that we see that are exploited in such ways is um, no coincidence, I think. Did the uh, quote that stood out to Paul stand out to you too, Priya? I think it was in the chapter heading, but it was something that stood out as it's supposed to be as people are leaving the planet. And it says, oh, you who know what we suffer here, do not forget us in your prayers. Oh, yeah. I remember which one you're talking about. Yep. I mean, I think someone put it this in the chapter notes, but we haven't actually seen Arrakis really. We've seen a lot of uh, hearsay, a lot of uh, other people talking about it. Um, Idaho has been inside the Sietch and is reporting back. And Paul is definitely itching to like explore, but we haven't actually. Uh, I mean, the only Fremen that we've met is uh, the housekeeper. So she's, you know, domestic. <laughs> she's inside. She's in a place where she doesn't have to conserve water. I don't even think she wears a still suit. Does anyone else remember if she wears one? I don't. She said she didn't have to wear it inside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I added that because I was also, I found it fascinating that even though we do have some Fremen characters who have been introduced to us, they don't say a whole lot about Arrakis. They talk of their customs, but we don't really have much of a detailed description of Arrakis in the sense that would give us an idea of what it would be like to be out outdoors in the outdoors. It seems that everyone who who we are introduced to in this section or our characters who are returning are all in this house. They're protected from the elements, it seems. And it sounds like when you do when you will eventually get to see Arrakis, uh, it's almost like they're saving that to give to us through a very specific perspective is the sense that I get because it's going to be very momentous I guess when when our characters do actually find themselves out there in that world 
it's kind of building it up, I feel. I mean, there's always a looming danger of sandworms. That's the only thing I really know about the outside. <laughs> there's, there's sandworms. So I'm guessing we're going to encounter them before long. I guess we encountered their teeth uh, as far as these knives. But Wait, how do you know, th- how do you know they're sandworms, Dan? Because they talk about them. Oh. Uh, I think, uh, I what's his, that's his face? The, well, the, the last one, the, the last they chapter. Asked, also in this one, I think Paul asks like, they're showing off like, look at this shiny new factory. It's so big. And Paul's like, aren't there sandworms that can like eat that whole thing oh. in one bite? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I do yeah, remember like, that. That's they're right. like, yeah. Kind of brings the mood down, but (laughs) this this also fills me with so many questions. Like, how how has anyone managed? Is that why the Chris knife is so important or sacred? Because it's like someone had to actually extract the tooth of a sandworm to be able to make a knife out of it. Is that why it's so so special? And um, a question that I had for you, Talia, is: Is there only one Chris knife, or because when? When it's given to Jessica by Shadow Mapes, it seems like there's just this one knife. But then at the end of the section that we read, there seems to be another one that's given to Duncan Idaho. So I'm assuming there are multiples. Is is that right? What I am guessing is that a sandworm has a lot of teeth. So if you manage to trap one and escape alive with one, you probably can escape with a couple. Uh, Sort of like a basilisk. But that's speculation. I imagine that I've seen no evidence that there's only one on planet. Okay, got it. There's also like a lot of weird stuff around the Chris knife itself, right? Like when when Jessica gets hers, like she has to put blood on it, and like it says, like it has to like keep close to her, or else it's gonna like dissolve, right? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty yeah. interesting. And then like also Duncan Idaho brings his, right? He can't even show it to him. Like there's like I don't know if that's like more ceremony than like process with the knife. There's a lot of interesting things around around the knife itself. For sure. And um, and weapons in general, like they have this whole discussion about shields. Yeah, yeah. And after spending all of episode one on like the importance of fighting with shields and talking about fighting with shields and you always need to be able to know how to fight. It's not just when you're in the mood. It sort of feels like they threw that all out in the second section because they're like, oh, yeah, you can't use shields out here. Right. Or else right. the sandworms <laughs> you. Yeah, that was yeah. a Caladan thing. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that was another time they talked about the worms, right? They said if you have too many shields, then the sandworms are gonna go crazy and they're gonna they're gonna find you out. Uh, I feel like we should also talk about Paul here. Um, you know, that was sort of like the biggest action uh, piece of of uh, of this section here when Paul like foils his uh, assassination attempt. So he's in his bed and then he gets up and like wanders around and all of a sudden sees like this they call the hundred seeker uh, coming out of the wall, I guess, behind his bed. And like it looks for movement, but he's able to stay and stand still. And it seems like he also might have inherited some of uh, his mom's superpowers. <laughs> he's able to like like catch it in midair as it's going towards the towards the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, and and I guess they find the the operator later on, who's a fremen in the basement, like who's like walled up behind there, and like they didn't even think about to check that. So I guess like where did that fremen come from? Like I mean, apparently he'd been there for a while, but like who's paying him to do it? Is the is it the Harkonnen? Is it someone? Mm. Is it the Fremen themselves? Because, because like I get the impression like this this is not where the Harkonnen were, right? Like the Harkonnen were in a different city. I think I think they talked because like they're in Arrakeen, and the Harkonnen were somewhere else, right? I mean, I think they still had decent amount of power on planet. They had it for many years, but yeah, yeah we're left with some some unknowns for sure. On that path lies danger. I guess they were trying to warn them. Be aware. Yeah. <laughs> so like the yeah the whole sequence of um. Uh, of, of his assassination was, was pretty interesting and then like the kind of way they they told 
build it and then they they backed up time a little bit to see like jessica that learned from it and then like then they go right to the duke and tell him the duke's reaction also uh he's initially really angry about it and he's like we should fire you know a uh, hot like with you know he's he's old and it's not useful and then as soon as like hot comes in he's like ah to forget it don't don't talk about it anymore <laughs> you couldn't have known but it's another good another example of a uh, good leadership right like he doesn't uh yeah, he kind of for, he kind of forgives and uh, yeah accepts, or maybe uh, that's at least at least to the uh, the employee. And and then at the end, this, uh, maybe I misread it, but I got the sense that Paul did not think very highly of his of his dad. I think he called him like a caged. I should have written this quote down. I called him like a caged animal or something. Where Paul either doesn't understand what the duke is doing or he understands the situation that the duke's getting himself into but i also thought that perspective like paul's perspective of his dad was was also interesting i find it interesting that you bring that up because to me that i remember which part you're talking about and to me that harkens back to this emphasis that the reverend mother places on differentiating between humans and animals and at many times you feel like the duke is acting in a way that would like theoretically if he were to take the test of whether he's human or animal he would pass that test because he's showing restraint he's showing good judgment a lot of the times or at least trying to but then when paul perceives him he seems to him still like a caged animal just trying his hardest to keep keep it together it almost makes you like question is the distinction between human and not a human or animal as as clear-cut as the benny treasure it seemed to present it as being and also, I wanted to go back to what you were saying, I mean, earlier about how like your perception of the Duke is kind of painted by how the Duke is shown in, in the movie, specifically when he's cast as Oscar Isaac, you automatically see him in like a bit of a favorable <laughs> light, right? You just like, because you know, this, this person, this actor, he's familiar to you and you automatically like him he's very likable um and as i and i had this problem too as i'm reading the book i'm not finding him as likable as i found him in the movie and then there's also a little bit of insight that the book itself gives us into the duke because a lot of the times when we're, when we're trying to analyze his character it may be confusing just as at times we feel like he's being responsible and showing good judgment but at times we see him through paul's eyes as being like a pacing animal we get this excerpt from princess irulan from the muadib it is said that the duke leto blinded himself to the perils of arrakis that he walked heedlessly into the pit would it not be more likely to suggest he had lived so long in the presence of extreme danger he misjudged a change in its intensity or is it possible he deliberately sacrificed himself that his son might find a better life? All evidence indicates the Duke was a man not easily hoodwinked. And what's interesting also to me is that there are two characters who seem to know that the Duke is going to meet his demise. I believe that's Jessica and Paul from having the, the Reverend Mother kind of told them that the Duke won't live long after he arrives on Arrakis, right? So... They seem to have this this uh, sense of this impending sense of doom about them, and that's going to paint their perception of him and the decisions that he's making. Whereas we, as the reader, also privy to this prophecy now, are still going to be trying to decipher him as we don't quite know who he is yet. 
Yeah, I think that's all really good, interesting points. Yeah, that's that's much better connecting than I had done. So thanks for that. No, but I think Amin kind of brought these ideas to the forefront with the with the quote about him being like an animal. And also, I think it's very valid to say that those of us who haven't read the books first and seen the movie first, our, our perception of these characters is undoubtedly going to be colored by how they are shown in the movie and also which familiar faces that we know and seem to love are playing these characters. It made me chuckle when um when Amin brought up the David Lynch movie because I was like, oh yeah, yeah, like I have seen the David Lynch adaptation of Dune. And as you were, as Dan, you were asking about, you know, Duncan Idaho and how to describe him, I was uh, doing some stealth Wikipediaing in the background and it did cause me a little moment of pride that even though the talented and um, very hot Jason Momoa was cast, it's still the 1984, I think Richard Jordan is still the Wikipedia page as of this record. <laughs> so it still has some staying power. The last thing I wanted to bring up, or the last thing point I had wanted to bring up that I thought was was really interesting, um, the, the note to uh, Lady Jessica that she found uh, and specifically, like when you know the 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 fact that it's like coded and has like on this path uh, on that path lies danger, and then like that's kind of like a trigger word to her, like oh, like that actually that means like there's like a, a secret note uh, that was super interesting to me. And then she goes and finds like mm-hmm. the the braille or whatever, uh, like the the dots that she can feel with her hands, the the actual message that she left. That kind of spy stuff is super interesting to me. But then also like the fact that like what's the What's the relationship um, between the the Lady Fenring and 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 Jessica? Like, do they know each other? Are they just clear that they're both Bunny Jesuits? I'm not sure what their relationship is. Yeah, at this point, but it's definitely something that seems hard coded into Bunny Jesuit training, like this awareness of danger. And like when Jessica is having her conversation with the housekeeper, we sort of see this like alarm bell go off. She's like, hmm. What do you think that means? I think she could be talking about and she gets this like beep, 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 like delay is as dangerous as the wrong answer. So it's better to just sort of like wing it. And I do think that there's something just about them being Benny Gesserits. Um, But yeah, I had the exact same sense reading the note and thinking about this section for my my closing thoughts as well. I think since we're on the subject of Jessica again, I would like for my closing thoughts on this to be the quote that we have uh, again from uh, the Muad'Dib in one of the chapter openings. And I'll read that. What had the Lady Jessica to sustain her in her time of trial? Think you carefully on this Benny Jesuit proverb and perhaps you will see. Any road followed precisely to its end leads precisely nowhere. Climb the mountain just a little bit to test that it's a mountain. From the top of the mountain, you cannot see the mountain. And I think that kind of leaves us with a lot of questions, um, more so than actually understanding what that necessarily means. But you know that this proverb and, and, and the ideas that it wants you to think of are going to come up later on. And when it speaks of uh, Lady Jessica's time of trial... Um, I get the sense that it's it's referring to the trials that will come upon her in the future and perhaps also the trials that she is living through in the present moment in the book where she is constantly aware that there is imminent danger, but she just can't seem to see it, um, sort of implying like from the top of the mountain, you cannot see the mountain. It, it seems that this Benny Jesuit proverb is going to be important at some point to me. 
get used to proverbs. That's all I can say. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It is thought provoking as it should be. Thanks for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes, reading lists, and all the other stuff we put up there. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And please join us next time for season seven, episode three, covering book one, Dune, and chapters in the reading list.